read them, yes, so whenever you're ready. Sure. The English government in the late 16th and early 17th century made a distinction between European polities and extra-European polities. For instance, when it came to monarchical letters, European princes were placed in distinction to the Grand Seigneur, that's the Turkish Sultan, the Emperor of Russia, the King of Persia, the Great Mughal, or the Indian Emperor, the several kings in the East Indies, and other remote princes. To some extent, at a cultural level then, the English expected to be able to treat the Ottoman, Safavid, and Mughal systems as much of a muchness. And they were not the only European government to take this attitude. This raises the question of how did Constantinople compare to other Muslim court centers in this period? Would a diplomat who served at Constantinople find a subsequent mission to Isfahan or Marrakesh easy to navigate in the light of their experience as the Ottoman court and vice versa? One English ambassador was in a relatively unique position to comment on diplomacy at the Ottoman court in relation to the practices at other Islamic courts. That is Sir Thomas Rowe, who arrived at Constantinople at the end of 1621 and served there until June 1628. Prior to his appointment to the Sublime Port, Rowe had spent three years as English ambassador at the court of the Mughal Emperor Yahangir. This made Rowe unique among early English diplomats at the Ottoman court in having experience of conducting formal diplomacy at another Muslim universal empire center before taking up his position in Constantinople. Rowe is perhaps best known as the English ambassador to the Mughal court whose rigid insistence on European courtly values seemingly undermined the efficacy of his negotiations in India. That view of Rowe may be rather simplistic but it is undeniable that Rowe's contemporary description of the Mughal court was not exactly flattering. His journal and letters contain repeated criticisms of what he believed to be the greed and corruption of the Mughal emperor and his officials. Rowe even went so far as to call Yahangir a monster on one occasion. His immersion in the diplomatic practice of Muslim polities while in India was not even confined to Mughal diplomatic conventions, as Rowe also conversed on several occasions with Muhammad Raza Beg, the Persian ambassador to the Mughal court in 1616. Rowe made few direct comparisons between the Mughal and Ottoman courts in his reports from Constantinople. However, early in his embassy at Constantinople, he explicitly compared his treatment at the Mughal and Ottoman courts in a letter to Lord Carew. His analysis strongly suggests that the diplomatic practices of the two courts, while similar in many respects, were also significantly different in important areas. Rowe emphasized that the degree of pomp and ceremony was high in both courts, but he went on to say that it was more extreme at the Ottoman court. Both courts were lavish, but Rowe judged that the Mughal court was richer. He contrasted the control, order, and silence that he witnessed at the Ottoman court with the much more relaxed, free and noble jollity he had encountered in India. Rowe appears to have preferred the more familiar atmosphere of the Mughal court and its affable and courteous prince, which more closely approximated the familiarity of the earlier Stuart court where Rowe had been a courtier. And he preferred these to the distant and impersonal protocol of the Ottomans and what he called its dumb image of an emperor. Ultimately, he judged that the Mughal is in greatness of revenue, in bravery of court, in multitude of attendants, in state abroad, in riches, in elephants in his sports, 
and which is most honourable in his conversation, a man that lives humanely with men and very much to be preferred. Whereas Roe clearly appreciated that the Ottoman protocol's deliberate distancing of diplomats from the physical presence of the Sultan and even from talking to him served to augment the majesty of Ottoman ceremony, this same distancing also led Roe to question the Ottoman Sultan's political involvement and ability. Roe's short comparison between the Mughal and Ottoman courts reveals that he was acutely aware that his prior experience only imperfectly prepared him to deal with the conventions of Ottoman diplomacy. The cultural relativism of the Ottoman court and other Muslim courts comes into sharper focus if we consider the experiences of Muslim ambassadors at the Ottoman court too. Abul Hassan Ali Al-Tamgruti, the ambassador of the Saudi Sultan Ahmad al-Mansur, the King of Morocco, related detailed information about Ottoman court protocol in his reeler or travel account that he composed of his embassy to the Sublime Port. Al-Tamgruti's mission in 1589 was to deliver gifts to Sultan Murad III, and if he was charged with any further negotiation, he gave no indication of this in his account. The Moroccan king sent annual gifts to the Ottoman Sultan, and the Sultan interpreted these as a sign that the Moroccan king submitted to Ottoman supremacy, although this interpretation was not shared by the Moroccan king. Like many ambassadors to the Ottoman court for Muslim polities, Al-Tamgruti was in a position to have some second-hand knowledge of Ottoman courtly society and its diplomatic expectations by the time he arrived in Constantinople. Like many of his Persian counterparts, Al-Tamgruti travelled to the Sublime Port in the company of Ottoman ambassadors returning from Marrakesh. He had met Murad's ambassadors at Al-Mansur's court and observed their behaviour there. Perhaps more unusually, his family could also provide him with information about the Ottoman court, as his brother had also undertaken an embassy to the Ottoman court at an earlier date. Nevertheless, his account makes evident that there were several differences between the practices at the courts of Al-Mansur and Murad III. Al-Tamgruti devoted several pages to describing the ceremonial procedure he had witnessed at the Topkapi Palace. His audience had been scheduled for the end of the day when the Divan or Ottoman Council had been in session, and his account suggests that he may have observed the Divan in action. He noted the strict hierarchy that was observed by the Ottoman officials. Rank determined each official's relative position to one another, the order in which they addressed the Sultan, and even the quality of their clothes. European ambassadors noticed such details as a way of helping their masters to understand the political hierarchies of groups of people at the Ottoman court. But Al-Tamgruti's more detailed descriptions of the exact relative rank of individual members of the divan and their demeanor also suggest that he was interested in comparing this to the practices of his home court. Al-Tamgruti came to the Ottoman court from a Muslim court with a different, seemingly less rigid ceremonial protocol. He found much to admire in the Ottoman system. Whereas Thomas Roy preferred the comparatively more familiar environment of the Mughal court to the Ottoman protocol, Al-Tamgruti commended the discipline on display in Constantinople. Unlike the Englishman, the Moroccan found the Sultan's silence and the hushed tones used by Ottoman officials admirable. And he observed that, I have never seen men observing precedents more scrupulously. A seeming admirer of the culture at his own court, particularly 
Almanser's elaborate ceremonial processions, Altamgruti nevertheless appears to have thought that the Ottoman court commanded a superior degree of deference and control. This admiration is particularly significant given the broader political context of Altamgruti's mission, which took place amidst the backdrop of his principal, Almanser, trying to revive the caliphate. Indeed, Almanser saw himself, not the Ottoman Sultan, as the rightful leader of Islam. Elsewhere in his account, Altamgruti was critical of what he believed to be a decline in the prosperity of the North African territories he visited on his way to the Sublime Port. And these were territories which had all been conquered in previous decades by the Ottoman Sultan. Implicit in this criticism is the suggestion that such decline would not have occurred if the areas had still been under the control of the Caliph. A critical tone is also apparent in Altangriti's comment that the heightened ceremonial of the Ottoman court did not prevent the court elites and common people from worshipping the Sultan in almost idolatrous terms. By looking at Thomas Rowe and Altangriti's accounts in comparative context, we can see that whether ambassadors came to Constantinople from Europe, Africa, or Asia, they still had to engage in a process of cultural exchange in order to operate effectively as diplomats at the court. <laughs>